Good morning, good evening, good night, wherever, however, and whenever you're listening. Welcome to another episode of The Melanin Report. I'm your host, Marquise Lupton, and we have another great show for you today. I am happy about this show, so you, the listeners, should be just as happy as well. It's Friday, so it's monologue day, and today we're blowing the top off of code switching. And you know how I like to do, I like to bring in the panel of experts to talk about these tough topics and end each show with things that make you say, hmm. So today we have Dr. Amber Sessoms, who is a nationally certified school psychologist and a doctorate level adult educator who has over 20 years of experience within the educational and mental health sectors. And in 2020, she became the first person of color to be awarded the Pennsylvania School Psychologist of the Year by the Association of School Psychologists of Pennsylvania. So that's one heavy hitter we got on the right side. And on the left side, we have Adam Housie, who taught code switching to students in Harrisburg. So like I said, we have a panel of experts to talk about this thing we called code switching. What is it? Well, beloved, I'm glad that you asked because we are about to get into it. This is part three of three of our podcast series this week. We started this week discussing our top five headlines with Dr. Kamika Campbell, our cousin of the program. And then Wednesday, we had our newsmaker conversation. So now it's monologue time. And here it is. Ladies and gentlemen, he, she, they, them. How's it going? So, you ever notice how we all got this switch, right? I mean, not like a light switch, but a code switch. You know what I'm talking about. That thing we do when we're talking to different folks like we're bilingual, but it's really our personalities just shining through. I call it the Swiss Army Knife of communication. Now, don't get me wrong here. Code switching, it's like our social survival skill, right? We do it to fit in, to navigate the crazy waters of the world. It's like we're all secret agents of linguistics, changing up our language and tone depending on who's in the room. But let's break it down a bit here. You ever notice how people switch up when they're talking to their boss? They're all like, yes, sir. Absolutely, sir. I'll get those TPS reports on your desk by 5 p.m., sir. But... Then you catch that same person talking to their friend, and suddenly it's like, oh, dude, did you see that game last night? It was lit. (laughs) And then there's the job interview code switch. You walk in, and suddenly you're Shakespeare. You're all like, I am enthusiastic about the prospect of contributing to your esteemed organization and leveraging my skill set to enhance overall operational efficiency. He's right, you know. But... Outside that interview room, you're all like, "Ew, where the pizza at? Now, the crazy thing is, it's not really just about language. It's about the whole vibe, the demeanor. You ever see someone switch from their corporate video voice to their regular video voice? It's like they went from C-3PO to Snoop Dogg in 0.5 seconds. What? But here's the thing here. The real talk about code switching is that it's not just about fitting in. It's about survival. You see, there's a study by the American Psychological Association that says people of color often code switch as a way of dealing with discrimination. It's like we've all got this linguistic camouflage to navigate a world that sometimes doesn't want to see us for who we really are. Shame. Shame. And it's not just a black thing. It's not just a brown thing. 
It's a human thing. A study from the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology found that people code switch across all races and ethnicities. It's like we're all trying to find that common ground, that social sweet spot where we all can just get along. But wait, there's more. But let's be real here. Code switching can mess with your head. It's like you're living this double life and you start questioning who you really are. It's like, am I the dude in the boardroom or the one at the barbecue? Am I James from accounting or am I Jay-Z on the weekend? Allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Ho, Ho, H to the O-V. I used to move snowflakes by the O-Z. And let's not forget about the linguistic gymnastics we do on social media. You got people using hashtags like hashtag corporate life during the week and then hashtag party animal on the weekend. It's like we're all living this digital dual personality. That's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. Now, I don't want to get too deep here, but we got to talk about how code switching affects mental health. You see, there's a study from the Journal of Applied Social Psychology that found constantly switching your language and behavior can lead to stress and burnout. It's like we're all walking this tightrope trying to balance who we are with who we need to be in different situations. Please stop this madness. What do you want? But here's the kicker here. We shouldn't have to code switch to be accepted. We should be able to bring our whole selves to the table, whether it's in the boardroom, the barbershop, or the backyard barbecue. So let's just all be real with each other and be real with ourselves. Let's create a world where we don't have to put on different masks, where we can be authentic without fear or judgment. Because at the end of the day, we're all just trying to navigate this crazy world together, one code switch at a time. And now, on to our panel discussion. And I hope you enjoyed that monologue. And for more information on this monologue or any other monologue you may have heard, you can email me at Marquise underscore Lupton at WITF.org. Again, that's Marquise underscore Lupton at WITF.org. I would like to thank you once again for tuning into the Melanin Report with Marquise Lupton because you could be listening to any other podcast right now. And we appreciate you taking the time to make us a part of your day. And the best thing you could do right now is share this podcast with a friend because friends don't let friends the Melanin Report alone. Now, like I said, we have our guests and panelists here today, Dr. Amber Sessoms and Adam Housie. Folks, how you doing today? Great. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, all good. Yeah. All right. All right. So let's uh, let's start it off uh, with the tough question here. Uh, what is code switching? Well, you know I'm going to turn it to you since you taught it. <laughs> I don't even know why you look at me. <laughs> Dr. Sussums has the letter that I think you know. Uh, for me, it is, uh, for, for people of color, it is understanding how to survive mm -hmm. in this world, in this world, uh, this sea of whiteness, uh, this white hetero capitalist patriarchy that we live in. Uh, it's, it's the rules and understandings of how to survive and what you have to do to switch up um, in order to be accepted in this society. And why does it exist? No, I think so. Can I just jump in when he said yeah, about yeah, the do. the rules? And I think about like, do we we learn the rules? Like, so our parents, our um, caretakers, people in our community teach us to, to help us survive, keep us safe. And then how much of that do we develop on our own, just from witnessing and, and seeing it in real life? But fall back on that, that question. You said, why does it exist? Mm -hmm. Racism, 
Oh, oh. I mean, but it's like right, like we, he was he was quoting some of Bell Hooks like imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Like right, like we all, regardless of your identity, we all live within it in this American society. I mean, globally, you can see it play out too. Yeah. But how do we navigate that? So we're all trying to fit into this box, and if we're honest, to get to in proximity to whiteness, mm-hmm. um, and because that's the desired right identity. Yeah. Uh, so we all do things that kind of limit or hide some parts of ourselves that society has said or undesirable that are harmful yeah. that can then keep us safe. Um, so it is definitely a survival technique. And like we've developed this body technology to do it, that we can move in and out of it effortlessly. And it's, to me, it's really frustrating because I try to be ever present at all times, but I see it and I get the survival aspect of it. But mm-hmm. it's unfortunate that we have to, that we are experts and we're so fluid at it. Oh, so, so, so fluid. I remember, um, in, in, in ninth grade, um, my, my parents took me out of on the school district of Lancaster and I started going to Lancaster Catholic. Mm. Um, and and like I saw my friends, you know, change up um, even the volume of, of their voices mm-hmm. decreased. Mm-hmm. And, and like there was like a good month where I tried to fight against that. Um, but but I f- found myself, you know, either isolated or frustrated because people couldn't pick up when I was, you know, talking about something as simple as, yo, you trying to go to the court after school? And they're like, my by court, what do you mean? Right. And, and it's just like, like, come on, you can read in between the lines right. here. Um, it, it it feels like um, code switching is, is kind of like a um, linguistic dress code. Am I um, uh, wrong in, in assuming that? Or right. No, I think you're spot on, and it's it's the way we speak, it's the way we act. Uh, when I used to teach it with students, like very simply, it would be like, how do you talk to this teacher versus how do you talk to this teacher mm. versus how do you talk to the principal, and why do you do that, and why do you switch up the way you talk versus how do you talk to your friends, um, and that kind of would open up that conversation with with peers mm-hmm. uh, into like what it is and why we do it. Yeah, yeah. Now, now if um, um for for us, uh, for a, a lot of us, uh, pe- people of color, like they like to um, um, say that we're we're speaking slang. You know, uh, um, if, if it's not of um, you know the king's English, mm. it's uh, it's 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 this slang as as if that's uh, a less meaningful way of language. Have you ever been um, been approached with? how you said certain words, even with your level of, of credentials, Dr. Sessoms. See, it's it was the opposite for me. I grew up in Middletown. Mm. Um, so my lived experience is that people that look like me question my blackness. Oh. Uh, that I'm educated. I wanted to be in the AP. I was in the AP classes doing all those things. Like, well, you're smart. Like, or it's like you happen to be smart. Like, you're smart for a black girl. So mm. I was always questioning what that meant. Yeah. So then blackness means that I'm somehow can't, like I'm not inherently intelligent. Yeah. Um, so it was always this question of like, um, am I black enough? Like, do I mm. fit in? So I think that's where it comes up to me. Like we buy into these stereotypes and these tropes of like how we have to show up as black people. So. Um, and then we have to get to a level of understanding when we do our, like our racial identity development where we're like, my blackness is black. Right. How I show up is how I show up. We are not a monolith. There's not one way to be black. Yeah. Um, but that takes some time and processing. But that's how it showed up for me. But I've never had anyone. Um, I've, they, they say things like, you're so articulate. Mm. 
Mm. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. What is that? So I'm always and I lean in with curiosity. What does that mean? I, I'm like, mm-hmm. we're gonna work through this together. You're gonna right. you're gonna do this work. <laughs> you're calling me out on that. Let's let's talk about what that means. Right. Because the assumption is that I don't follow the rule. So yeah. what's the rule? Let's talk about what the rule is that you developed the schema that you have in your head about people that look like me. Have you ever had um ha- had the statement said to you like, oh Amber, I know you're black, but you're not like black black. Okay, see, now you're just me. <laughs> no, because, yeah, yeah, it was just this week. So, oh, um, oh, oh. no, but it was it was a white woman who said to me, oh, I didn't know you were married. Um, are you married to a white man? And I said, <laughs> I was so curious. I was like, what wow. What does that mean? She's like, you seem like you're married to a white man. I'm like, what does that mean? She, could, Of course, like when I start asking questions, they mm-hmm. can't articulate because then they're like, oh, wait, what does that mean? Right. But that was really fascinating to me that. She somehow assumed that because like my blackness was like equated. I don't know where she got. I don't know how like she figured that out Mm -hmm. and me just based off of who I am. But that was that was interesting to me this week that she said that. uh, um, Does that same phenomenon happen with you, Adam? Yeah, all really? the, always questions uh, for for people listening. I'm I'm Asian. I am Korean. Um, always questions of like you are not Asian enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm an adopted Korean raised by a white family, so I was the only Asian kid uh, that I ever went to school with. Mm-hmm. So like what Dr. Sesson was talking about, like fitting into the stereotypes because that's what the people around you expect. Yeah. Uh, so even in high school, I was taking like advanced math classes because that's what the guidance counselor told me to do. But mm-hmm. I was getting C's and I'm sitting there like, why am I in this class if I'm struggling when I could just be in a different class? Yeah. Um, a lot of like internalized racism, um, self-deprecating humor, um, mm-hmm. again, as like acts of survival. Um, and then, you know, even professionally in teaching, when I would teach public speaking, uh, we would talk about job interviews uh, and how uh, my students, you know, and we would name the thing mm. that like they are expecting you to speak in a certain way, that certain professional polish. And we would name the white supremacy in it. Um, and we would talk about it and unpack like why students might have to switch up how they speak um, as they enter a job interview, as they are writing, like writing samples, cover letters, resumes, things like that, um, because this is like the world that they are entering into. It's not right. Uh, they shouldn't have to change who they are authentically um, as long as they're able to communicate. Like like you said, like we know what you're saying, mm-hmm. um, but you are making us say it in a certain way. I remember uh, um, eighth grade, I went through this uh, um, program and, and we had a whole week's worth of, of how to talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it was a whole etiquette thing uh, uh, that they said on 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 how to talk, how how to speak to police officers, how to how to speak to teachers, uh, how, how to speak to principals and everything. It, it, it was basically, you know, how to speak to authority. And now being the adult, it's like, OK, you were teaching kids how to how how to make adults feel more comfortable around them. And shouldn't it be? the other way around shouldn't the adult be providing that safe space for the kids uh which which um brings me to school mm-hmm. uh, um and and how in in the school setting you know um, um i've had had so many times at lancaster catholic you know teachers say well can you say that again you know uh can you say that without the slang mm-hmm. you know um try to say it more english you know, when when you hear stuff like that in your um, working lives, working worlds, what comes to mind? 
Well, when so you tied it up for me with when Adam was talking about schools. That's exactly what happens. I think about Dr. Dina Simmons, and she does a lot of phenomenal work in like abolitionist uh, social emotional learning, and she talks about social emotional learning without uh, anti racism, without the abolitionist work, is white supremacy with a hug. Oh, my right. Goodness. So you're thinking about like we're teaching students like I'm trying to protect you. I'm showing you how you can be successful in life. Successful for whom? Successful in proximity to whom? Um, and how much of yourself could you were taught to say it this way or like do the etiquette classes that you have to leave at the door that you have to dismiss that you have to hide from? Mm. What is that doing? It's spirit murdering our children oh. that they can't show up as their full authentic selves. And that's not me that Dr. Bettina Love says that she talks about from moving from um, surviving to thriving. But that's what we're doing to students in these schools. And as a school psychologist, I see it play out because it happened to me, mm-hmm. right? And to Adam's point about, like, we laugh. Uh, I'm working with the group right now, and the student said to me, he was an eighth-grade black boy, and he's like, you know, they have a whipping app. And they it makes the cracking whipping sounds. And they're cracking the whip at me and ca- saying, get back, you and get back, you monkey. And he's saying it in this session with eight year, eighth graders, and he's smiling as he's saying it. Wow. And I said, I understand why are you smiling? Like, right? Because it's the rage or it's just like, I'm just trying to fit in. Or I'm trying to show it doesn't bother me. It's just, they're just joking. Mm-hmm. And we have normalized this racial trauma and we take it because we think it's just a part, it's a lot in life. This is just what we have to deal with because we live in this white world. And I'm like, enough. Like, we have to then develop the agency be like, no, I'm not going to tolerate that because we start internalizing it. We start believing it. Yeah. For me, it was like, I hated my blackness. I couldn't stand this, my color of my skin or my hair. And now I'm so intentional with my three black daughters that you can't tell my eight-year-old anything, okay? <laughs> they asked her in school, what's your favorite thing about yourself? She said, my hair, all of my girls have locks, including myself. Mm. She said, the teacher takes a picture. She said, no, turn around and get it from the back. She wanted <laughs> all of the hair. And I'm like, but I wish, right? I, not that my family didn't instill that in me, mm-hmm. but the schools, the minute you walk into schools, there's a disruption that happens and there's a sorting system that says, mm, leave that at the door. It's not yeah. welcome here. I'm trying to help you prepare you for life. That, that's a great point because um, I I grew up in the suburbs um, uh, and, and and I had internalized um, I, this was about uh, the age of 13 to about sophomore year of, of college um, I I internalized that uh, there's not going to be a lot of success for me because I'm a black kid from the suburbs and typically you know for black people you have to have this rags to riches kind of thing oh. so because i didn't have a rags to riches kind of story i'm not going to be successful mm-hmm. you know uh and and it didn't really internalize in me that that's kind of crazy until i talked to one of my professors and they had a similar experience they were like no i'm i'm from montgomery county <laughs> right, you know right, right. two parent household i knew both my um grandparents on both sides you, you, you know and could share this this story with me um so so that mm-hmm. that right there really really helped me out with the um struggle of blackness to think that to be black means to struggle. To struggle, right? Like that's our stories have to start there. Right. And then that's what's put on TV because it's like the Oprah movies of the world. Like, oh, my gosh, look at her. You can you can make it. You can attain it. But it's right. like I feel like I've been saying it. I said this to my therapist this week. As a black woman, I don't know a life outside of like in spite of. Mm. I've, 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 I've made it in spite of. Like what would it look like to not have the in spite of? Right. And that's all I know. It's the cape on your back. It's like you just got to keep working. You got to work 10 times as hard. And I'm like that narrative is tired. That narrative left me depleted, left mm. me where they're – I diagnosed me with lupus because my body was like, this is what I have to do. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, is, is, is there that same applied pressure for you, Adam? 
Yeah, the uh, the model minority myth weighs mm. heavy on on the Asian community and this idea that you know, like under capitalism, we have to work and work and work and work and mm -hmm. open more businesses and and more shops and constantly be working and be measured by what we are able to create for you know capitalism and financial wealth and all of those things. Um, so being able to push back against that and having spaces for people uh, who are able to like talk about these things out loud mm -hmm. um, and I want to name like the real need for those spaces be to be able to be emotional with people um, and especially like the way like patriarchy layers into this yeah and how like men are not allowed to talk about their emotions mm -hmm. so it really just you know, amplifies things and and creates a vicious cycle yeah for um for this code switching um, uh, um we we see this word um enough um, um you know you're not black enough you know you're not asian enough um did did you have to navigate that uh through through your upbringing and do you still have to navigate that today yeah, talk, talking more about, like, last week's stories. Oh, <laughs> my God, last week! <laughs> I was with uh, uh, a lot of Asian friends. It was, like, a little Asian conference. Um, and we're at we're at a, a restaurant, a hot pot restaurant, and I'm the only one that asked for a fork. Mm -hmm. So I had to, in my head, just, like, kind of get through some of those feelings yeah. uh, about being enough and, like, I don't want to use chopsticks tonight. Like, mm -hmm. this is, don't tell I know this is the radio. <laughs> it is an inferior tool. I'm sorry. And like, that could be like internalized racism again, but like mm -hmm. give me a fork. Yeah. Um, so I had to like process that. But like mm -hmm. thankfully I was people that I, I could say that out loud. Mm -hmm. And I'm here with folks I can say that out loud. So like, like being able to name those things and have people to talk about it with is just super important. Oh, indeed, mm -hmm. indeed. No, I agree. And think about, like, we talk about affinity spaces. We talk about employee resource groups. I like to call them caucuses, but there's mm. so much learning that happens in dialogue and discourse that when you, because, right, this world is set up to make you think, like, something's wrong with you. You are all the way off. This is, there's something wrong with you because we see it, right? Especially minoritized people, we can see the system. Like, mm. it's like our, our third eye. We have a, a sixth sense. Um, but when you're in those spaces, when you're dialoguing, you can say, oh, you understand what I'm going through. Or you can give me the language. I'm trying. It's like at the tip of my tongue. I can't figure it out. And then you talk to someone that looks like you that has a similar lived experience. And you're like, that's what I couldn't name. Yeah. And it unlocks something in you to develop this discourse and help you in that identity. And those spaces are so liberating. And people get upset. They're like, oh, these safe spaces. I don't like to call them safe spaces or, bra or brave spaces, but liberatory spaces and thinking about like, this is, is going to be hard. Sometimes they, it hurts. But that is a necessary evolution for me to evolve to a higher level of self. Mm. And I, I welcome those spaces. So for people that are not in, like, I always get the, the hate from the from dominant culture, from white people. They were like, well, why can't I be in that space? This is reverse racism. Yeah. And I'm like, I it's know. not safe because we spend so much of our life um, with the white gaze. And the work that I do in terms of equity, inclusion, and belonging, whatever we want to call it, we can't say, we can't say diversity <laughs> now. We can't definitely talk about justice. I mean, what can we say now? Uh, it's belonging now. Belonging. We, so we, <laughs> belonging. We'll stick with that. There is a good book on belonging. I'll say like uh, Floyd Cobb. He's a black. Uh, I don't know. Is he an educator? And then um, I'm like Jonathan Cronapple. They wrote a book on uh, belonging through a culture of dignity. Mm. So they have a dignity framework in there that you can talk about. You can really assess dignity in schools for students and belonging. But now you just, let me come back to that. So wait, I said belonging. 
because I was so, oh so in thinking about the work that that I do and like and where do we fit into this and like what does belonging mean and, and how do I fit into the mold of that it's just it's so problematic but um, there's a lot of work to do that in that area when we say who belongs who doesn't belong in this space because I don't want to spend so much of my life right and this is what I've done is in proximity to whiteness and like the white gaze and making sure that they're okay and comfortable with how I show up right. is it okay if you write what's the what's the poem because I know he knows all this stuff but who's like if you oppress me a little bit less I feel like I live my life like we have lived our lives like that is it okay if you just oppress me a little bit less and like like this mm-hmm. um, so those spaces free you to not have that white gaze in a lot of respects to really deal with who you are as an individual outside of that and in, in spite of the in spite of right? right I don't have to I can practice what it would be in spite of in this space as liberatory yeah like I like to um, uh, say folks I like to brag about this show this is the smartest thing that you uh, will hear on audio uh, for the rest of the year um, <laughs> so please please do yourself and your ears a favor and share this with a friend uh, now my next question um, ha- has to deal with uh, the role um, so societal identity um, plays now now growing up um, I'll use myself as a example being in Lancaster Catholic, uh, as we were getting older, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, what have you, um, I saw those uh, f- th- those same black and brown friends start to mimic rappers uh, mm-hmm. because that's what they thought, you know, well, if, if I'm black, you know, if, if I'm urban, you know, this this is what I have to do. This is what I have to say. This is how I have to talk. Um, so what role does um, social identity play in influencing code switching behavior? When I think about the dominant culture, I think about the choices that it takes away from the minoritized. So I think what you are speaking to is, is for minoritized populations. They have far fewer choices than they think. Mm. So they see rappers, they see basketball players, whatever, and they think that that's the way out of here. Mm. But for for the dominant culture, for whiteness, for for young white people, like they they are able to see themselves as anything they want right. because they are examples out there for them. Right. Um, that's why you know, like representation is not enough. Like just simply representation, it has to go farther. But it is so important, especially in those younger ages, elementary school, things like that, to have incredibly diverse options for students to see mm. uh, on the walls, things like that. Because um, those social identities, like you said, are so important to be able to see, to be able to look up and see role models and be able to see, like, oh, that can be me. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, we talk about the idea of school being, like, mm-hmm. windows, doors, mirrors, mm-hmm. like, all of those things. Like, every student should be able to s- have the abundance of choice as they leave their their public education or, like, 12th grade or whatever. Yeah. Um, they should have the world open to them. Um, that, that's what I think liberation means in schools, um, and we're not doing that for all kids. Indeed. That's powerful. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, like, what you said, I'm like, full stop. Like, that is, that's that's the work. Um, and, again, I go back to that spirit money aspect. So if we're not doing that, then what are we doing? And the sorting that happens, so what are we teaching our white students about where they belong and their hierarchy in life, and what are we teaching our, our BIPOC or, or historically minoritized students? Mm. Be explicitly, implicitly, it is there. They learn very clearly, I'm above you. And it makes me think when you talk about representation, I remember being with my oldest in the city, and I was taken to her art class off of Front Street, and a black woman, beautiful black woman, was out sweeping. Mm-hmm. She stops me and she says, I want you to know that I'm volunteering here. 
because I want your daughter to imagine herself beyond me. Don't think that this is all she can limit herself to, but I'm volunteering mm. here. I don't want her to see me and think this is what she has to develop to. Yeah. And that is so important. And in schools, again, what is it? 90, what is it? Maybe it's 88, and it's probably 92 plus percent white. Mm. Um, we don't see ourselves in those spaces. So if you don't see yourself, if you don't have proximity, if you don't see and you affirm people that look different than you and you say, well, you belong over here, baby. This is where you belong. Yeah. And you're being kind because you're trying to prevent them. Like, this is not a space for you. What are we doing to limit, like Adam says, um, the potential? And if I can't be myself, we are missing out. Our world is missing out on the wisdom and the brilliance of beautiful black and brown people because we keep limiting the way that we have collectively right, survived. Yeah. The, the masterful alchemist that we are and that the world's like, I don't, I need you to just be over here in the corner somewhere. Yeah. Missing out. Yeah. I look at um, uh, that, um, that, that paper plane effect. Uh, uh, sh- shout out to TJ Griffin. He, he talked about that. Uh, when, when you look out your front yard, you know, if you see abandoned homes, you know, if you see boarded up homes, you know, that's going to potentially put you on some kind of trajectory in life and put you in uh, some kind of mindset versus if you look out your front yard and you see boats, jet keys, BMWs and Benzes, you're going to approach life a little bit more different. Um, I, I Again, using myself as, as an example, looking at um, Lancaster Catholic, you know, the, the, the blackest and brownest thing that we had in there was the janitor. You know, mm-hmm. uh, thank thank mm-hmm. thank goodness for for my mom and, and my dad getting me in, involved. The reason why I got involved into broadcasting was because I was part of this program that Ron Martin was a part of. You wow. know, and I was a part of that program for seven years and looked at Ron Martin as myself, and then got into media because of this man. So, Adam, to to your point, that that paper plane effect. Seeing seeing folks as yourself plays a, a, a huge role. And yes, our menu does become limited when we start lo- looking at our kids' options. So how, how can we expand on, on that um, menu, so to speak? Or better communicate? I, I think one of the things I always try to do is, is to name the why and then keep digging deeper. Mm. Um, Dr. Sheree Livingston out of Lancaster mm-hmm. articulates this really well. She tells you, you got to ask why like five times. Mm. So it's like, why are those buildings boarded up? Okay, it's this. But why is that? Why is that? Why is that? Yeah. So we got to give students and young people, and, and frankly, anyone who hasn't had this education, the understanding of, of the system and how it was built and why it was built, mm. how to survive in the moment, but also how to build towards a better world. Um, so that to me is liberation and yeah. public schools right now, they're, they're not going to give you the tools uh, to kind of defeat your oppressor, I guess you would say. Mm. Like one of my favorite quotes is the master's tools uh, will we'll never unmake the master's house. Um, so if we're using the same tools to, to try to defeat uh, this oppression and break out of these boxes that like code switching makes us do, um, it, it's not going to work. We're just going to replicate cycles and we're just going to be maybe like like the proximity to whiteness, which mm-hmm. we, we talk, talked about at the top of the hour. Like, mm-hmm. Is that the goal to be like the most the closest to whiteness? Like the country of Korea spends more money on skin lightening mm-hmm. 
things than any other country in the world. It's a mm. billion-dollar industry. Like, is that really the goal? And to me, it shouldn't be. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we want to impart on our young people, that, like, we can be do- thinking more. We can be doing more. Oh, man, where's the collection plate? I didn't know you were going to be... I didn't know you were going to be uh, uh, preaching. <laughs> oh, all right. Um, um, and, and for you, Dr. Sessoms, um, we didn't even bring into uh, this discussion yet gender. Um, mm. uh, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you were just talking about it yeah. on the way in. <laughs> uh, so um, are there gender differences uh, in the way individuals engage in code switching? Wow. Okay, so here's the crazy example that I have because I I'm gonna stop using the word crazy. Uh, when I I get my hair cut by Amit Corso Cutting Edge Hair Salon in hey, Lancaster, yes, Amit. <laughs> every two weeks I get the hot towel massage everything. When I go in there, I find myself like I'm switching a little bit because I'm like I'm a female, but I'm like mm-hmm. there's females in this space, but it's like I feel myself doing it. I'm conscious of it, um, but I do see that. But even the example I gave earlier about like being in a space with a, a therapist that could not even name the the misogyny that was happening in the room at that time. And I had to name it. And I'm like, how are we just going to bypass that and not name that? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you, and it made me think about like, Malcolm X saying like we are the most unprotected group in the world, like black women, yes, like absolutely. we have to shoulder all this and like, but we buy into the myth too. Mm. And I was raised by powerful, strong black women, not many black men in, in my family. And I learned and adopted. And, and that was my technology to survive again and unlearning that. But yet that is very much a part of it. It is different or even my struggle and my lived experience. And I have other um, black females that grew up in uh, suburban spaces that we did not have the relationships with black women mm-hmm. that we needed to like in our educational K through 12 system. So I really struggled to find a home that finally got belonged amongst people that look like me mm-hmm. because, again, I didn't fit into the mold. So I had to work through the defensiveness. And I still see it some, sometimes it comes up in meetings where I'm like, I see them over there talking or they're laughing. I'm like, are they talking about me? And I'm like, Amber, you grown. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I catch myself because that's been I did not have strong relationships with black women until college. It mm-hmm. didn't happen for me yeah. because it wasn't safe for me because there was so much that I internalized oppression or like, well, you have two parents in your household or you have this and you're not on free and reduced or all of those things Mm -hmm. that came up that it was again like the dog eat dog world but yeah it definitely comes up in those aspects for me I don't know in terms of black men but I'd love to hear from you like Mm -hmm. on that but like I do like black women when I talk to them they're like I had that experience too I didn't have like strong female black friends now growing up this is a um, side note here uh, because now I was triggered Um, (laughs) (laughs) growing up um, um, did you get ostracized for for having those things, for having a two parent household, you know, for um, um for, for 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 having that uh, family stability, did people ostracize you as being less black because you had you had those things because you weren't on a reduced lunch plan and and, and so forth? Did the people say, oh well, you're not really? Oh yeah, you know for sure. Like mm-hmm. oh, you're not really that black or. Yeah. And even though my grandparents raised it so we can go, like, I do have a lot of that trauma. So, like, I, I feel like a lot of that stereotypes, like, is still a part of me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did have, like, my grandparents that raised me, so I, I did have that. But, like, growing up in Middletown, it's not super affluent in Middletown. I like, one part I was in the borough, and then we moved to uh, the township. So it did make a difference, me switching to the township. And now she they just built this house, and mm-hmm. now you're living here. Uh, but that did play out for me. And, like, oh, you're not really that black. And, again, doing the work of being like, well, what does that even mean? Mean. Right. Um, 
And I feel like that's the part where you said something earlier, Adam, about like this, this freedom dreaming about is it proximity to whiteness that I because the way that white supremacy is set up, it doesn't allow for the expansiveness of how we dream. Mm. We only dream like mm-hmm. and we see it with adults. I This is why I love working with students because students will read you for filth. Students will say <laughs> what they have to say. I mean, I was I, I did a panel with school language for students and I said, say that again. <laughs> they will say it all. And I was yeah. like, make sure the superintendent gets this. Like, <laughs> But they will say it all. And like they don't they're not so susceptible to the system and being like what we can't do like they're going to buck up against it but yeah. we get to the now we we made it we played the game to get to, in these positions that we're in yeah and we sometimes lose sight of the innovation that we need and our students mm-hmm. can lead the way they give us permission to do that so i always go back to them and like let, let them dream because this world it robs us of that yeah because mm-hmm. we're trying to aspire to be something that the aspiration needs to be thrown out yep so, um, so can code switching um, be a tool for resistance or empowerment in certain social or political contexts? Yeah, and it, and it has been used as a strategy. You think about the civil rights movement and how they always wore their Sunday best. Um, mm. But that was a strategy. Yeah. You know, and that was, you know, 70 years ago, and the work they did was incredible. And kind of what you were speaking to, we need to learn from that mm-hmm. um, and also grow from that. Yeah. Um, so, like, respectability politics today, like, no, I'm not for that. Like, that idea of, like, the quote-unquote, like, respectable Negro, yeah. like, absolutely mm-hmm. not, no. Um, so it is a tool to survive. Mm. Um, but, like, Dr. Sesson was saying, like, I don't think it's it's a way forward for thriving. Right, right. Right. And it's all about uh, it, it's, it's all about thriving and uh, not not so much um, just surviving mm-hmm. uh, the, these days. So uh, what are uh, the neurological and brain mechanisms associated with code switching? Uh, don't look at me. I've never been asked that question, but I think about like we have these mental schemas, right? Or we have this way that what's safe and what's not safe. Like, we, we develop that. Like, it's just, it's automatic. Mm-hmm. So we have, like, these, like, you know, reticular activating systems or whatever keeps us alive in these parts of our brain that are just wired to be, like, this is what we have to do um, to survive. Or we learn from past experiences and, like, we just adopt those. So I can't point you to the exact part of the brain. Like, I'm, you ta- <laughs> me taking me back to, like, early 2000s <laughs> and, like, neurobiology class. <laughs> but like, that's a really, that's a valid question, like, of the schemas. And I think about... What is the tool that I know we had to take the tool in, in psychology classes where you the implicit bias test or you think about those things and how we just quickly learn who belongs, what, who doesn't belong or like who is more likely. There's a study that shows like there's all these these students are just like just doing nothing. They're benign. Who's the students? That's the problem. Anyone, regardless of racial, ethnic background, pick the black the black students more about doing things that were quote unquote bad. They weren't doing anything bad. Mm-hmm. So we developed that over time. And again, like for students, it's like, well, if I think that I'm inherently bad, right? If I think that people look at me inherently bad, how does that show up and how I process and how does that look like multi-generational, the trauma, the racial trauma that we are impacted by mm-hmm. is now like th- thinking about like uh, American Psychological Association, equating that to like uh, PTSD, Mm, like ooh. it's the same type mm. of like trauma response that we have. Oh, my it goodness. happened to me earlier in the meeting today, and I'm like sitting there processing like, this racial trauma coming up, and I'm like, this is racial, but this is racist misogyny coming up in this meeting because they're asking me and they're questioning and being like, 
oh, we want to show you and like all the expertise that you have. I said, I'm not doing that because that's dehumanizing to me. And you're only asking me that because I'm a, a black woman. Right. You don't ask the white men to be like, tell, tell us why you deserve to belong here. Tell me your credentials. But with right. me, I got to bring all the receipts. And even to get to the table, I have to be a doctor and have all these things to even get a seat at the table. And I'm like, that is problematic. Right. So all of those things, I think, is like we develop this technology. And when it comes up, what do we do in response to that? Is, is the problem. We heighten that frontal lobe. We can't articulate. We can't think. We're always dealing with stereotype threat. And it doesn't ever leave us to settle in our bodies and be the kings and queens that we have been designed to be because we're mm. constantly in this battleground in our heads of being like, did they say that because I'm black? Did they? All day long. Yeah. Yeah. It's exhausting. It is. It is. It is. Um, uh, so um, uh, what are the educational implications of um, code switching, um, especially in bilingual and multicultural uh, classrooms and situations. Yeah, I had a colleague who uh, taught Spanish and she learned Spanish from her Argentinian grandmother. Mm -hmm. So when she got her cert and started teaching, we, we first year together, we were teaching together. She couldn't teach the Spanish in the book because the Spanish in the book was like the, the king Spanish, that colonizer yeah. Spanish. Mm. So she had to take extra classes <laughs> because she couldn't do it. Uh, so when, when you see, say the, the bilingual aspects, like that definitely pops into my brain about how, you know, just everything that we are taught in school is through that Eurocentric lens. Um, and the implication is if we keep doing that, we're going to just perpetuate these cycles. Mm. And in, in 10 years, we're going to have the same conversation. Yeah, yes. It's going to be the same exact way. So, you know, giving students the tools to, to understand and name the things that they, they are experiencing uh, and ways to kind of break out of that is is key. And how do you all navigate uh, this art of code switching uh, in your working and professional worlds? For me, I name my identities like right off the bat. Um, and I often think I'm always in my head. If I'm entering spaces, I'm like, why are you talking like that? <laughs> like, why did you just switch up like that? Or even like what I wear? Because I, I love a good blazer. I got about 40-something blazer. And it's like Roy G. Bev, like color-coded. It's a whole thing. <laughs> but today, Adam texted. He's like, what shoes you wear? <laughs> I was like, I'm going to put my J's on. Like, I'm coming. I'm coming today. But like, I think about those kind of things and how I show up. But 100% like that, that's what comes to mind. Mm, mm. Adam? Uh, one of my favorite writers, Hanif Abdurraqib, talks about how it would behoove you to have a crew, uh, talking about how you cannot move through this world without your people. Mm -hmm. um, so it is my people that keep me going. Um, and you know, even professionally, we know that in work, even though the system and the institution might, might kind of get you down, like there are little spaces that you can carve out uh, the people that have your back, the people that you have their back, the people in this room right now, mm -hmm. in my crew. Like I know we are able to talk about these things, um, and those are the things that, that keep me going. Um, so are there, um, are there any linguistic features uh, that are more prone to code switching than others? I feel like you'd be good at answering that, but... <laughs> <laughs> you know, just thinking about this conversation... Um, I think about a fight I got with in with one of my colleagues because I heard her one of my students and I it was a Harrisburg thing too they'd say not mean a lot mm -hmm. you know, not mean <laughs> and this teacher was getting on him being like do you know what I mean say that and mm -hmm. I'm like you gotta stop 
because the student, and this is how we like criminalize language. Mm. Yeah. You know what that kid is saying. You're literally saying it back to the kid. Mm-hmm. Right. And the kid is just getting angry. And then that, and then you're going to write the kid up for yelling at you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like those little slang words and like we call it slang, but it's also just the vernacular, I guess, is the, the formal ver- word for it. Um, like, I guess John, like that's, that's the word. You know, that, yeah. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. that's a word that that I love and use and people kind of look at me funny, but I'm like, you, you know what I mean? Exactly. Uh, what, what, what comes to mind, um, is, is, uh, when I used to ask to go to the bathroom, um, and, and, and I would say, uh, Hey, Mrs. So-and-so, Mr. So-and-so, can I use the bathroom? And they would say, yes, you can. Okay. And, 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 and it's like, <laughs> all right, all right. I get it. May I use the bathroom? And, and, and it's just like you you understand no. <laughs> right. what what I was saying. You understand where I'm coming from. But for whatever reason, you know, you're making it extra hard, you know, and, and this this doesn't really apply to, you know, the rest of the world. If I went to my boss and said, can I use the bathroom? My boss isn't going to say, may you use the bathroom? <laughs> right. You know, if, if I even have to ask at all because I'm an adult. Come on. You know, so so like we we are um, um, in instilling into these kids some some quote unquote real life stuff uh, that they're not going to experience. I have a whole monologue um, uh, about this when I'm talking about algebra because I have yet <laughs> to figure out uh, the computation of A, B and C. But um, <laughs> but um, um, our, our next question here, uh, we have about three minutes left. Um, so. What are the uh, social attitudes and perceptions uh, toward code switching in different communities that you know of? Because mm. I think about like, right, you're talking about in black cultures. I'd be interested to hear about Korean culture. But for me, right, like my I can talk for me, like my job is to try to be myself all the time. And I question that because I'm like, am I trying to be in proximity to something? Am I trying to fit in? Is it's belonging to me? Mm. And so sometimes it could it could look as safety. Like I feel comfortable to, to talk this way. But sometimes to me, it's like, am I still performing? Am I still trying to like fit in? And that's my own baggage, my own uh, identity um, there. But in terms of other groups, but that that's how it is for me. Mm. I think about some of the videos that I use in my work. And indigenous populations and how they'll talk about like they don't even bring out their elders that look like me because it brings shame to the family or how they even show up in certain spaces um, because it brings shame and dishonor to the family to have someone that looks like me and part of their bloodline. Mm. Um, so do I do I operate in that sense? And like, is it part of the shame and internalized oppression? I'm always questioning and unpacking that. Like, is that why I'm hiding the parts of myself that are authentic to who I am because of the shame? Mm. In in Asian communities, I see like serious uh, economic impacts causing folks to overwork, um, causing folks to to see making more money as like the most important thing in the world. Um, and I see a deterioration of mental health in our mm-hmm. community um, because I think one of the most prolific things um, that that you know immigrants and and folks who come to this country are told is that. You got to hunker down, you get that rugged individualism, you got to do it on your own, um, and that's how you will be accepted. Um, and then, you know, we have folks, you know, again, that model minority myth, like saying, like, look, look how well they are doing. Mm. Um, so then I see, you know, my peers like trying to be that thing um, and really, really hurting themselves, um, trying to aspire to a thing that they, they can't even name. 
um, where you know I'd love for us to just be able to be ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, I always talk, I, t- I talk about Route 66, best burgers in Central PA. Route <laughs> I 66. always had the best food places. <laughs> Classic Americana, right? Mm-hmm. Owned by a Middle Eastern family. Yeah, you yeah. know, and like you see it a, a lot of times, and it's like. I think about onions too. Korean mm-hmm. owners—they've yeah. got their their American breakfast, which is fine. But the best things on their menu are, are the Korean food, you know. But mm. they came here and they opened up their their American breakfast, and they said, "This is what the people want." Yeah. Uh, so this is what I'm going to give them. But I'm going to have to try their Korean food. I've only been there for their American breakfast. Now I feel a little <laughs> disrespectful. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> That I feel a little disrespectful. Um, uh, we have two more questions here. Um, uh, so, um, uh, Amber, we'll start with you, and then, uh, Adam, you can answer um, uh, next. So, uh, did you ever find yourself in a situation, um, and this is whether um, uh, past, past or present, uh, ha- have you ever found, found yourself overcompensating um, to, to, to not feel as though... <laughs> <laughs> well, go ahead. That's my middle name. <laughs> That's all that my trauma rolled up into one. I just like the alchemist in me is like, yes, overcompensate. <laughs> so you have? Um, I think about even like right me earning a doctorate and like what that meant. Like, and like there's a part of me. I remember being in class one day and my professor said to me, you're brilliant. And I said, I'm the, of course, the only person of color in the cohort. Mm-hmm. And I said, are you just saying that because I'm black? And the whole class was like, <laughs> <laughs> but I was just like because for my whole life I've heard like oh it was like I was just like I didn't expect you to be smart or I didn't mm. expect that and I didn't want it to be like oh well she's smart enough or she's just like she's good enough like for a black person like yeah. where am I like on the whole scale thing so I remember that always coming up but I often think about um, I recently had a superintendent I did a whole report I did a whole analysis thematic analysis qualitative report 104 pages and she says Talking about therapy because I was talking about therapeutic support service school. You need therapy because this mm-hmm. report was and she's rude. How rude is that? Because this report is way too long. And I'm thinking like, did I overcompensate? But I'm thorough, so I'm always questioning. But that level of compensation that you have to work ten times as hard yeah. just to be seen, the overcompensation in that. What part of my living and who I am and my truth is is me and my essence and my core and how much of that is my trauma? Mm-hmm. Like, and I don't know if I'll ever know the truth of that, right? Because it's like, but we talk about like Adrian Marie Brown talks about that, like getting like because the Maya Angelou uh, quote with the inviolate place, like getting back to before you were violated, before mm-hmm. colonialism, supremacy, all these things told you which you're not. Yeah. Like getting back to that, so that perpetual toddler in me that asked those five whys, that asked those questions, like getting back to who that Amber was before the world told me I was trash and didn't belong mm. is the course so I try to like remind myself of that mm. and I was actually going to ask that but now I now I know why <laughs> you say that you're a perpetual toddler oh yeah that was I, I read that in your bio I was like I'm always asking why it is the best thing I love mm. it I'm very curious Not every, that's one of my core values is curiosity connection authenticity but I am so curious I'm like well, what do you mean by that let's talk <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm gonna adopt that. I'm, I'm I'm about to get on everybody's nerves, and that is that is all right because I need the answers. Uh, Adam, for yourself, have you ever found yourself, uh, whether past or or um, present, in a space where you had to overcompensate? Yeah, and as an uh, adopted kid or person, I'm an adult now. Um, a lot wondering if it is overcompensating or reclamation. Mm, that's dope. So, for, I got three tattoos, Korean characters. 
Uh, my wife was looking at me funny, like, you got three tattoos very quickly. Are you, are you thinking this stuff out? And like, yeah, I'm like, I'm good. Mm. Uh, one of them is my, my Korean name, Yoon. Um, mm. It's just tattooed on my arm. Uh, if uh, uh, someone who could read Hangul came up to me, they'd be like, why do you have your name on your arm? You know, because it's a very common name. It's like the sixth most common name in, in Korea. Mm. Um, but for me, like, it definitely, yes, it is, a, it is an overcompensation. Um, but it's also like trying to reclaim something that I definitely lost yeah. um, as a child. Um, so there's always a struggle. Um, of course, you know, overcompensating. Uh, I took uh, calculus at 8 a.m. my freshman year of college. That mm -hmm. was definitely overcompensating. <laughs> <laughs> I dropped that class very quickly. Um, but there are little things like that where I definitely overcompensated. But mm. to me, a lot of it is reclamation. Um, but it is something I am constantly thinking about. Uh, like, why do I have to take on this other project? Is it me just trying to, like, overwork and prove myself? Uh, or is it something I really have to do? So saying no and setting some of those boundaries has been something I've been really working on in, with myself and the people I supervise. Now, was um, um, was this overcompensation one of those um, in spite of type things? Or, or was it uh, like, look, I belong here and... Here's here's the ways and reasons why I belong. Yeah, I try not to get into those spaces. Like I said before, mm. and they're like, you got to tell me like why you fit in. I'm like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. I'm not going to like sit here and perform like uh, my dignity for you. Like it's inherent, right? Like it's unearned. Um, but yeah, like it's a constant unlearning for me. But I love the idea of like the reclamation of it. And I think that's the journey for me. It's like the figuring out like what part of this is in spite of and what part is like am I leaving behind the idea of like I got to wear the cape I got to take all this on like and what part of it is like that I'm reclaiming my the true essence of what I was designed to put on this earth to be so not mm. what I'm against I always think about like what am I against so much of this world is is violent it's fear mongering that's all right like, you talk about resmomenicum and like the work of like white bodies black bodies and 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 blue bodies like white violence has lived in their bodies for centuries mm. right it's just like that and then we right if we're in proximity to that i think about why are we then adopting some of those same techniques but then also like if you look collectively as like black and brown people that is not what we do <laughs> and it, that is that brings a curiosity to me too so getting back to like our roots and thinking about like how we have been communal how we have been the nurturers even in spite of people saying that we don't belong like how we still love and like when they're spitting in our faces and how we still say like so I know Eddie Glaw talks about this. Like I have, um, I grew up with people, where people raised me to not believe the myths and the legends and the lies that they said about me. Mm. And I think that is so powerful. Like that's what we're doing in this space. We're disrupting the notion. When I'm in a space, I'm disrupting the notion of like they said I didn't belong here. But my ancestors dreamed that dream, and it's not this idea of like, oh my gosh, they're water streams. They knew I belong here, and I'm just a manifestation of, of that. And um. <clears throat> Finally, finally, uh, before we get to uh, things that make you say, hmm, uh, phone <laughs> rings, phone rings. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> and, and, and the folks listening to this are probably cracking up as well. Like, oh, yeah, I know. I, I know. We, yes, 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 Marquise. Go on ahead. Go on ahead. Ask it. <laughs> so, phone rings, don't know the number. Uh, what voice do you put on? <laughs> <laughs> I hate the way I answer the phone sometimes. I get so mad at myself. But it is very much, I don't, I don't know. I can't even describe it. But I've had people, 
right when they're on the phone with me and then they meet me they're they're definitely surprised mm. they didn't think i was black oh mm. yeah i get that a lot mm. <laughs> adam uh what oh, phone rings <laughs> <laughs> don't know the number and you answer what voice you put on. my roommate in college and <laughs> i when we had girlfriends and we would call our girlfriends we we would call it girlfriend voice and like, <laughs> hey baby how you doing like how's your day like i think girlfriend a stranger voice. like that is the you give the girlfriend voice yeah, like hey what's going on yeah. i love that <laughs> so do your um uh, uh friends um do they or have they giving you a hard time like ah that's your girlfriend voice <laughs> <laughs> well now they're used to it and uh, my wife knows when I'm around people when I'm yeah. talking to her because I don't use it and she's like are you around people <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my kids will call me out oh. in a minute my oldest oh yeah Oh man! Well, uh, well, we are going to um, put a pin in it right there for our discussion. Um, I, I feel like we we just like just just blew the dust off the top. Like we we definitely can get into it um, a, a lot more. Um, but I really do appreciate you all um, adding conversation to this large topic. Uh, so before we head on out, uh, as as promised, things. It make you say, hmm. So uh, we're going to ask you some hypothetical questions that uh, you may or may not know. Hopefully, you know them. Uh, so now they're really going to say I'm not black. <laughs> See, you set me up. <laughs> but I'm Korean. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, who was the realest black TV mom? We have. Oh, you ain't. I, like, no, I'm sorry. Like I, cl I'm clear all day. Like I named my car, my car Claire. She and y'all might not agree. I had a conversation with my white colleague, and she was like, "She was mean." Mm -mm. She was real. No, so <laughs> you're going with Claire Huxtable. You ain't got. Uh, that's just me. That's all just right. my childhood right there. All right. Who was the realest? I just but love I'm Tracy Ellis Ross on Blackish. Oh, so oh yeah, you're right. Yeah. More recent, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I could go with that. I could go with that. Um, I, I, honestly, Claire, Claire, Claire as well. Like I, I grew up on the Huxtables uh, um, and, and everything like that. Like we religiously, religiously <laughs> watched uh, the Cosby Show. We watched the spinoff um, when it was just Cosby. We watched oh, Different World. Yeah, yeah. Like mm -hmm. we were, we were a Cosby family. Um, so, in in your opinion, in your uh, opinion. <clears throat> In what year did Cash Money Records take over? <laughs> no. <laughs> you, you're joking right now. <laughs> Is it A, 1998 to 99, B, 99 to 2000, C, 2000 to 2001, or D, 94 to 95? I'm handing over my black card, y'all. Y'all can't see this. <laughs> I gave it back to Marquise. I go to Middletown. <laughs> <laughs> I went to AME Church. Like that's all I knew was gospel. <laughs> well, um, uh, for for the listeners, um, Cash Money Records is taking over for the nine nine and two thousand. It is it is B. It is B. So uh, uh, we have two more questions here. So, what's the reason you skipped class last week? Is it A? <laughs> Took a black took a black person mental health day. B I overslept. C my great uncle's dad cousin sister's pet Deborah died. Or D attendance isn't mandatory, so I'll catch them at the final. What is the reason you <laughs> skipped class last week? 
I mean, that met- that black mental health day is that hit me. Mm. That is real. Mm. Ooh. It's D for me. D for you. Attendance is mandatory, so I'll catch them at the <laughs> final. <laughs> Understood. Um, I, I I am going to go with B. Um, I, I I overslept. Uh, that was one of my um, one of my things that 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 I mistakenly did in <laughs> in college. Like like I was a night owl and an early bird at the same time. And oh. It didn't mix. Mm. It did not mix at all. Uh, so. Our our final question here: Which food do you ask a certainly family family member to make because nobody else can make it right? Mm. Is it A macaroni and cheese, B potato salad, D jerk chicken, D collard greens, or E all the above? Man, see, we don't really do the jerk chicken, but it's really all above. Like mm. I gotta make the greens. Now I taught my daughter how to make the mac and cheese. Ooh. So it's serious. We we sitting there shredding the cheese and everything. It's it's a, it's a thing. Oh, you shredding? That's authentic. Oh, we're, we're, yes, we, we're we're about it. <laughs> That's authentic. That's authentic. Yeah, it's it's all the above. Yeah. You, know, you listen off those things. I got a person I go to. Right. <laughs> I'm always like, who made that? Yeah. <laughs> yep. I don't want that. <laughs> So, do you all have have any uh, uh, dishes that you have to bring to the family gathering? This is my final question here. Yeah, because I wanted to know because I'm trying to get some of what you making. Uh, <laughs> I make the best pizza in Lancaster County. Oh, uh, <laughs> see, where we, where we going? When's the invite? Uh, but but recently, I've been bringing a lot of like spam and American cheese to the potlucks. Uh, very Korean meal. Yeah. Very simple. So it's a little bit of laziness as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but spam, a little Cooper Sharp on top. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Oh, well, you know, um, um, I'll give you my address so that uh, my <laughs> invite can be sent right there. Um, again, this has been fantastic. This has been magical. I appreciate you both taking time and, um, yeah, just giving us the game on code switching. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. You. Yes, indeed. Well, that concludes part three of three of our podcast series this week with our panel discussion and a monologue. I want to thank Dr. Sessoms and I want to thank Adam for coming in and discussing this top this tough topic with us today. So before we head on out, we have a quote from none other than the GOAT, Bob Marley. And he says, life is one big road with lots of signs. So when you are riding through the ruts, don't complicate your mind. Flee from hate, mischief, and jealousy. Don't bury your thoughts. Put your vision to reality. Wake up and live. I am Marquise Lupton. This is The Melanin Report. Trust your dopeness, and I'll see you on the other side. Now enjoy these tunes. See you later. Peace. Been down.
you ain't gone.